today on Eco Report. I've been a park ranger here in Yosemite for over 20 years now. The quote-unquote normal pattern it just isn't happening. Correspondent Norm Holy speaks with Scott Gediman, public affairs officer for Yosemite National Park. Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from south-central Indiana. According to the Sacred Stone Camp, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Weekend saw water protectors engage in four major pipeline-resistant actions across Turtle Island, the pan-indigenous movement's name for North America. In Texas, two water protectors locked themselves to Trans-Pecos pipeline pipeline equipment in an effort to delay construction. The Trans-Pecos Pipeline is being constructed by the same company building the Dakota Access Pipeline, Energy Transfer Partners. If completed, it would carry fracked gas from Texas through the environmentally sensitive Chihuahuan Desert and Rio Grande River areas to the Mexican consumer market. The Society of Native Nations and Two Rivers Camp are spearheading the anti-Trans-Pecos pipeline effort with resistance camps near the construction areas. Meanwhile, in Florida, opposition to the Sabal Trail pipeline continued on Sunday as hundreds of water protectors blocked a construction road leading to the Suwannee River. Sabal Trail pipeline is slated to run under the river, and workers have already begun drilling in the riverbed to, in preparation for pipeline. The morning following the road blockade saw eight arrests, as two people locked themselves to a pipeline construction truck. If the 515-mile natural gas pipeline ruptures, it could endanger the health of multiple economically impoverished communities of color in Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. The Sabal Trail Pipeline also poses a contamination risk for, for the Floridan Aquifer, one of the largest freshwater aquifers in the world, which supplies drinking water to millions of people throughout the South. And in resistance to the proposed Diamond Trail Pipeline in Tennessee, 12 individuals from the Arkansas Rising Organization were arrested as seven protesters blocked the entrance to the Memphis Valero Refinery, the final destination of the pipeline. The protesters chained their arms to cement-filled barrels and blocked gasoline delivery trucks from leaving the refinery. The proposed Diamond Trail Pipeline route crosses more than 500 waterways. Back at Standing Rock, North Dakota, a few hundred protectors, water protectors walked and prayed at the barrier fence in front of the point at which the Dakota Access Pipeline is proposed to be run under the Missouri River. In response, the police and National Guard used rubber-coated steel bullets, tear gas, and pepper spray at point-blank range. 
One water protector was struck in the eye with a rubber-coated steel bullet. Police arrested 14 water protectors and kept some of them overnight in cold dog kennels. In response to the Dakota Access Pipeline resistance, North Dakota Republican lawmakers have introduced bills that would restrict the use of face masks and would protect drivers who accidentally injure or kill pedestrians with their vehicles. On January 11th, Officer Tom Arvin of the Criminal Intelligence Division of the Indiana State Police, badge number 874, came to the rural Monroe County home of an individual who had visited Standing Rock in the months prior to Officer Arvin's visit and had been arrested there in a mass arrest of more than 100 peaceful protesters. The individual preferred not have his name featured in this story. On the day of the visit, Officer Arvin showed his badge and left a message offering to take the individual who was out of the house out for a Coke. Arvin later said on the phone that he had, quote, a big personal interest in what happened at Standing Rock and just wanted to hear from somebody who was there and that he knew that this person had a court date in North Dakota and that he might be able to help out, unquote. The individual implied in a Facebook post about the incident that he believes that Officer Arvin was working in collusion with North Dakota police to help them collect evidence for his court date and that he regretted speaking with Arvin on the phone. In 2012, Officer Arvin is reported to have approached another Bloomington resident and repeatedly offered to take them out for food and drink. At that time, he was said to be working with an FBI agent named Corey Grass. As law enforcement worked together across state lines to investigate environmental activists, many activists are participating in so-called Know Your Rights workshops, where they learn their rights for interacting with police and, and are encouraged not to speak to police without legal counsel. In more county news, Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Director Tom McGlasson says the district is moving forward in finding a consultant to help with plans for a mixed waste recycling and processing facility. The facility, known as MRF or MRF, has been in the works for more than seven years. It has been delayed at different times by lack of funding, zoning questions, poor attendance at the district's board meetings, and disagreement among local officials regarding the viability of the project. McGlasson told the district's board of directors last week that a request for proposals for a new consultant will be advertised this weekend. We should hit uh, DHT on Sunday and the Ellisville Journal on Wednesday. Those are the two uh, newspapers by law we, we have to advertise in. Uh, additionally, we'll be looking at advertising in the Indianapolis Star and a, uh, a national online industry service, uh, Waste360, uh, as well as a national periodical, Waste and Recycling News. So, And all those should happen uh, over this weekend, beginning of next week. McGlasson said the deadline to receive proposals is February 21st. In other Bloomington news, board member Steve Volan updated the board on efforts to maintain a recycling center in downtown Bloomington. The city shut down the old downtown recycling center because of impending development. Unfortunately, the city couldn't continue to allow the center to stay uh, where it has been, but there is an active group of, uh, of people who formed a new not-for-profit organization called the Bloomington, Indiana Recycling Collective and uh, Burke is trying to find a new place for the uh, 
to, to continue the operation of the downtown center. Volan said once a new location is found, the recycling center will be operated as a nonprofit and run by volunteers. Volan said anyone wishing to volunteer can email bir-collective at gmail.com. The competition that spawned the Monroe County Energy Challenge is officially over, but the Energy Challenge lives on. In the January 11th meeting of Monroe County Environmental Commission, Bloomington's Sustainability Coordinator, Jackie Bauer, said the nationwide Georgetown University Energy Competition ended December 31st. But the task force that worked on the Energy Challenge for two years wants it to continue. We're going to proceed with kind of a pared-down version of the challenge, so focusing on some of the most successful pieces of the program and, um, you know, kind kind of building on those. Bauer said the Solar, Wind, and Watts Roadshow is one highly successful program that will be continued. The Solar, Wind, and Watts Roadshow trains high school students to teach second and fourth graders about renewable energy. Bauer also described even longer-term goals. We're going to do some focused work that will feed directly into an environmental sustainability plan that the city is developing. So this is the first time we'll have a a comprehensive sustainability plan. Like I said, it's going to focus on the environmental component of sustainability, but we are looking for grant money that will help us really build in a strong equity lens that considers the disparate effects on different households and populations and neighborhoods and so on. Bauer said she won't know for some time whether Monroe County won the Georgetown Energy Competition's $5 million prize. Because of climate change and commercial activity, Louisiana is experiencing faster levels of sea level rise than any other land on Earth. The loss of land from sea level rise on average amounts to a football field per hour. The state could lose as much as 2,800 miles of coastline. Over the next 40 years, some 27,000 buildings will need to be flood-proofed, raised, or bought out. A new Louisiana coastal master plan calls for an investment of more than $50 billion over 50 years. The plan calls for 120 new projects, including protecting or vacating properties in regions at risk of facing a 100-year storm. The plan also would restore 800 to 1,200 square miles of wetlands and construct new levees and flood walls to protect communities from hurricane storm surges. Louisiana's governor, Bobby Jindal, is a climate change denier. The CEOs of two huge agribusinesses, Bayer and Monsanto, recently met with President-elect Donald Trump to ask him to approve the two companies' proposed $66 billion merger. If they merge, together the two corporations, which specialize in genetically modified seeds and the pesticides they're designed to withstand, will control 62% of seed sales on the planet. The two corporations combined would constitute the biggest seed and pesticide company in the world. The two CEOs informed Trump that the merger would create or keep jobs in the U.S. and thus assumed Trump would okay the merger. A Monsanto spokesperson called the meeting productive.
The merger hasn't received regulatory approval in the U.S. or Europe and has been subjected to U.S. state and federal antitrust investigations. However, Trump's nominees at the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission are likely to be friendly toward the merger. Only six corporations currently dominate worldwide seed and pesticide markets. China announced in the first week of 2017 that it will invest $361 billion into renewable power generation by 2020. The investment is supposed to create over 13 million jobs, according to the National Energy Administration. The energy plan includes wind, hydro, solar, and nuclear power. The new capacity will represent about half of new electricity generation by 2020, which will mark a major shift for China away from coal. The plan will boost solar capacity by a factor of five. That's equivalent to about 1,000 major solar plants, according to experts' estimates. China became the world's top solar generator last year. In 2016, China's solar industry blossomed, leading to an 80% drop in global prices. A Chinese wind energy company also produced more energy than the American company General Electric, the world's former leader, in early 2016. China already has the world's largest installation of turbines, and growth in wind power can be attributed, at least in part, to the Chinese government's so-called war on pollution, which has shuttered coal-burning power plants near cities. And in some local sketchy news... An electric traffic display board off of Indiana Highway 37 was reprogrammed to read National Day of Revolt, January 20, 2017. The stunt was intended to raise awareness about national anti-inauguration protest. And that's the news for this week. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 334 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. In today's Eco Report feature, Norm Holy investigates the effects that global climate change is having on Yosemite National Park. It's Dr. Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Scott Gediman, who's the Public Affairs Officer for Yosemite National Park. And uh, we're doing a series here on national parks, and Yosemite actually has been in existence over 126 years, so quite, quite the long stint indeed. And then, of course, the national park system as a whole, uh, celebrated their 100th uh, anniversary uh, in, in August of ni- or 2016. So one of the topics that uh, I'm pursuing in all of the parks is, is there an effect of climate change on, on your park system? Okay, yeah, here in Yosemite, um, one of the things with, with climate change, we, you know, it's certainly affecting... Um, 
the entire world, but but here in the national parks, it's affecting every park differently. And probably the most visible and significant um, effect that we've had um, has been the effect of the um, long-term drought on our trees. Uh, some folks may have heard about a big tree die-off in the Sierra Nevada and the western United States, and here in Yosemite, we don't have an exact count, but literally thousands of trees, mostly the ponderosa pines, um, are being affected uh, by the drought, which is certainly connected to climate change. And what's happening is there's a small insect called the bark beetle. The bark beetle is a naturally occurring insect um, in the trees, and with a healthy tree, a tree can generate sap and, and generate chemicals to fight the bark beetle. But with the ongoing drought, we're in our fifth year of drought here in California. Um, the trees certainly don't have the moisture to be able to fight the bark beetle, so the bark beetles are infesting the trees and, and literally killing the trees. And so both here in Yosemite National Park and throughout the Sierra Nevada, um, we're just seeing huge hillsides that uh, were, were beautiful green trees and now are brown trees and they're dying off. And so it's certainly a direct impact to the drought and climate change. Now, uh, do you keep records of rainfall um, or precipitation uh, for Yosemite or, or the surrounding areas uh, separate from, you know, California? We, we do, and, and what we do here in Yosemite is is, is we measure um, we, we measure the rainfall. Of course, it's, it, it's there, there's a lot of different ways to measure it, but with us, we have two uh, two rivers. In fact, they're both the nationally designated wild and scenic rivers: the Merced River and the Tuolumne River. And we measure the snowpack. The snowpack, of course, melts, um, flows through the rivers, and then um, both of the rivers, the Tuolumne River, ends up in the excuse me, the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which provides the drinking water for the city and county of San Francisco, and the Merced River ends up providing um, irrigation for agriculture. And so last year, um, the, the, the season that, that ended from 2015 into 2016, uh, we were doing pretty well. We had about 80% um, in the Tuolumne drainage, about 90% in the Merced drainage. So we had a good year, but going back the past four or five years, we've had uh, significant decreases in the amount of snowpack we've gotten upwards of the 50-60 range. And so with this prolonged deficiency in the snowpack and the lack of rain, of course, that, that has contributed to um, not just the, the, the drying out and the climate change effects, but also the killing of the trees that I mentioned a bit earlier. Now, does the snowpack melt completely uh, in the summer? What happens is is the snowpack does melt completely, and um, it feeds our waterfalls. In fact, a lot of the famous falls, Yosemite Falls, Bridal Veil Fall, Ribbon Fall, Horsetail Fall, all of these falls are fed by the snowpack. And so... For example, on a day like today, which we're receiving rain, which is wonderful, we'll never not like rain, but these are very uh, warm storms. And so with the snow level up at the 6 up to the 7,000-foot mark, where it's not leaving a lot of snow. And so what we like to see, of course, is these cold storms come through, significant snowpack, and then building up the snowpack throughout the winter months into the spring. And then once we get into the spring melt, um, that will both feed the waterfalls and uh, flow through the rivers and eventually um, end up, as I mentioned, um, down in the Central Valley. And so it's one of those things where where we're certainly happy to, to get the rain, uh, but it's really the snowpack that we're concerned about. 
So the rain is great in the waterfalls that are normally dry in the fall. If uh, visitors come to Yosemite the last few weeks, the waterfalls are going. So it's certainly a little bit of a, of a anomaly to see waterfalls flowing in uh, late fall, early winter. Uh, and so it's wonderful for the visitors, but at the same time, it's something that we'd rather we'd rather uh, take a break from the waterfalls and see the snowpack being built up up in the higher elevations. Yes. Now, is the snowpack essentially gone earlier than it say was 50 years ago yes and that's what's happening is that is that with with the winters being diminished and and less of a snowpack and the warmer temperatures that's combining to basically have the snowpack be be gone and, and the waterfalls are drying up earlier than they would for example the merced river drainage the merced river starts up at merced lake up in the high country here in yosemite national park there's enough snow to keep vernal fall and nevada fall flowing year Around. That's the only waterfall, uh, significant waterfalls that go year-round here, although they get very small in the, in the late summer into the fall. But uh, the other waterfalls, some of them that I mentioned, like Yosemite Falls, Bridal Veil Fall, Ribbon Fall, uh, what we're seeing is that with the diminished snowpack combined with the high temperatures, that, that those waterfalls are going drier earlier. And this is something that's had a cumulative effect for the past four or five years. In fact, 2011. Uh, five years ago, going on six years ago now, is the first winter that we've, um, excuse me, that that was the last winter that that we've had a a quote-unquote normal year. And so it's very interesting. So, for example, in the the lower elevations of the park, a lot of trees that um, would normally uh, lose their leaves have not lost their leaves yet because we've had some um, rain uh, this fall. And so it's interesting because in, in my time here, I've been a park ranger here in Yosemite for over 20 years now, um, things just, you know, the, nor- the quote-unquote normal patterns, it just isn't happening. What other effects are you uh, concerned about uh, going forward in the park? What, what are your issues as you see them for the park? Well, with us here in Yosemite, um, like all national parks, our, our goal is to is to manage the park and, and, and manage a healthy ecosystem. And so um, we've seen some adaptations of, of some of the animals, some of the small uh, mammals, for example, we're seeing are, are going up to the higher elevations. And so we're certainly monitoring that. But one of the nice things about um, so much of the wildlife population is that is that they are resilient and they are able to adapt to these changes. So, so far, we, we've seen some changes in terms of, as, as I mentioned, some of like the pikas, for example, um, that live up in the high country. We're seeing them in higher elevations um, due to warmer temperatures. And so we're seeing a little bit of effects of them. But for the most part, the wildlife, the um, the deer, the mule deer, for example, or the black bear, or things like that, um, don't seem to be affected. And so we're certainly um, looking at these things. Um, but like so much of, of the effects of climate change right now, there, there's not a lot that we can do proactively to really mitigate things. And but we're certainly we're certainly monitoring um, both the both the effects on the flora and fauna of Yosemite National Park. Terrific. Uh, I've been speaking with Scott Gediman. He's the public affairs officer for Yosemite National Park. I really appreciate your update on, on what's happening at the park.
listening to Eco Report on WFHB, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana. Would you like to join the Eco Report crew? WFHB is looking for volunteer reporters and engineers to join our award-winning news department. We provide training and will work with all schedules. For more information, email volunteer at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And now we'll have information from our event calendar. The movie Seasons will be shown by the writer at several locations and upcoming dates and times. With its exceptional footage of animals in the wild, Seasons is the awe-inspiring and thought-provoking tale of the long and tumultuous shared history that inextricably binds humankind with the natural world. Check out thewriter.com for event details. The Bloomington Community Orchard will host a class on selecting disease-resistant fruit trees on Saturday, January 28th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Hilltop Gardens at IU, located at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Learn how to select fruit trees that are resistant to to diseases in order to facilitate tree care, increase productivity, and improve fruit quality. In Indiana, diseases caused by bacteria, fungi, and viruses make fruit production challenging. Selecting cultivars that exhibit resistance to the most problematic diseases helps make fruit production more successful without the use of expensive and hazardous synthetic chemicals. The class covers how to evaluate disease threats, how to choose cultivars and rootstocks with appropriate resistances, and where to obtain resistant trees. The class will be led by instructor H. Michael Sim- Simmons. To register, visit bloomingtoncommunityorchard.org classes and reserve your seat. Eagles Over Monroe will take place at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Friday the 27th, Saturday the 28th, and Sunday the 29th of January, beginning at 9 a.m. and ending around 10 p.m. Eagles Over Monroe celebrates the close relationship that dives into the lives of eagles and other raptors. Tour the lake to see eagles in the wild, learn about recent research, meet live raptors, explore bird biology, and explore new ways to enhance your enjoyment of birds at Monroe Lake. The programs are accessible to both beginners and experienced birders, adults, and children. Meet at the Four Winds Lakeside Inn. For the event schedule, registration, and information about lodging and dining, go to www.visitbloomington.com forward slash Eagles over Monroe forward slash. If you would like to send material or monetary support to the Trans-Pecos Pipeline Resistance Effort, you can check out the Two Rivers Camp Legal Defense Fund online. To support the Sabal Trail Pipeline Resistant Effort, you can check out one word, sabaltrailresistance.wordpress.com. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812 336 
888-242-2785 or online at solarsystemsofindiana.com. This week's news stories were written by Aaron Comforti, Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. The script was edited by Aaron Comforti. Our event calendar was compiled by myself, Juliana Daly. Our feature was produced by Norm Holy. Our broadcast engineer is Matt Griffin, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Join us next week when we hear Norm Holy interview Jeff Stant of the Indiana Forest Alliance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the EcoReport. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.